All right, so the, 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 the book itself, it is classified, it is, it is erotic love poetry, it was meant to be sung. Uh, it is written by whom? The Song of Songs is written by whom? Solomon. So we know who the author is. And here's the interesting thing. He wrote it, and not only did he write his parts, he wrote the beloved parts too. Isn't that interesting? And then the friends, he wrote that. So he wrote the whole thing. He wrote both parts. So it's, it's kind of interesting. So the first part that we're going to look at, we're actually going to look at the literature itself. So uh, again, there's basically, there's three voices. There is his voice. There is the beloved, the, the woman, the, the young lady. And there are the friends. And you see, uh, you see the picture of of almost like first love. Remember what it was like to be to fall in love for the very first time, and it it just you did. There's just that excitement. There's that uh, naivete. There's just that you know you just you just you're an idiot basically. And you fall in love for the first time. You just do stupid things. You act. You know you're just you're out of your mind. And this is I believe that this is what we're going to be. This is what we see. Solomon. He is he is a young man. When he wrote this, when he began to compose this song, I believe that he was a young man. There's some very smart scholars, way smarter than I am, that think that it was written later in life, but I don't agree with that because there is this a level of, uh, of joy, there's a level of excitement to it, there's a level of positivity to the story that it, it's just, it, it seems as if it was written by a young couple in love. And that's, that's how we're going to present it. I think it was redacted a little bit later in life, and we'll hit it on that in a second. But it is the Song of Songs, Solomon's Song of Songs. And what does that mean? It means it's the best song that's ever been written. It is number one on the Billboard charts. Uh, in Kings, it says that, that Solomon wrote 1,005 songs and 8,000 proverbs. And this is the one that they record. Out of the 1,005 songs, this is the best. This erotic love poetry. Why, why in the world is it in the scriptures? And we're going to be looking at that. There is a very specific reason as to why it is in the scriptures. But to put it in almost like a modern term, now it's not pornography. The ancients did have pornography, but this would be equivalent to the articles in Playboy. It's that, it would be at that level, and this type of literature served that type of purpose. But it's, it's, not, it's not pornographic. It's just, it's romantic love poetry. And it's very graphic, and it's very explicit. Um, your mind actually kind of has to go there. Uh, this is not meant to be read literally. It's meant to be read figuratively. Now, Solomon wrote it. We see him, we see him and the beloved uh, meeting. We see him and the beloved engaged. Uh, the reason why this is not a dating material is because intimacy occurs before marriage in this story. That's, that's why you don't want your teenage daughters reading this. If they're smart, they're going to figure that out. And if, and if you know what teenagers are like, well, if King Solomon can do it, why can't I do it? It's a forbidden love story. 
We'll see the meaning to that in a second. But we see the, 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 the passion of two young people connecting, and then we actually see it evolve over time. Uh, the beloved, the woman, is described as being a Shulamite. Do we know who she is? I think that we do. I think that we actually know specifically who she is. Again, just like everything else in scriptures, uh, scholars disagree about who she is. Uh, I think that this is completely off. I don't think it fits at all. But you know, some people think that it was the Queen of Sheba. I don't think that it was the Queen of Sheba. The only indication to why it would be the Queen of Sheba is because this woman is dark. She's she has very she's dark complexion, um, very very dark. So almost she's black possibly. We don't quite know. And we know that the Queen of Sheba was from Ethiopia or from you know below Egypt somewhere. So it could be her. I don't think that it is because that's the only indications that it could be the Queen of Sheba. This is who I think that it is. Because it says this is a Shulamite woman. Now in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1, we, we, have, uh, we have basically the, the decline and the death of King David. Remember this story? We talked about it. King David is old. He is, actually he's not that old. He's just beaten. He's just a heartbroken man. He's kind of almost given up on life because of, of the tragedy of, of, of his son Absalom, whom he loved so much. Like, he could, have, he could have kept going. I mean, it was, but he was a, he was a broken man, and he was, yeah, he was kind of crippled and, and just, just weak and weary, and he could not keep himself warm. And so they, had a, it's a, they thought it would be a great idea to hold a beauty pageant and get the most beautiful virgin in all of the land to take care of King David and to get into his bed and to keep him warm. That's what the Bible says. Now, the Bible also says in Kings that um, David did not have sexual intercourse with this maiden, with this Shulamite maiden. She was a Shulamite. What's a Shulamite? Well, it, again, we're not completely sure. But he said they did not have intercourse with this woman. And I, you know, initially, because we know who David is. David is a ladies' man. That's his, like, number one weakness. And the Bible does say that they didn't have intercourse, and I actually believe it. Usually, I'm skeptical, right? Wouldn't you be skeptical if the most attractive woman in the entire world was in your bed? And that was, like, your weakness. Like, women was your weakness. And you have, like, the greatest temptation that you could possibly have in your bed. But there was no... I believe, I believe what the Bible says about it. I don't believe that David had intercourse with this maid. And she was never promoted to a wife, and she was never uh, promoted to being a concubine. So this is actually important. If she, was a, if she was having intercourse with David, he would have promoted her to being one of his concubines. That's just what kings do. Is it, is it, is it morally right? Absolutely not. Okay, polygamy is not morally right, and nor is having a number of concubines morally right for anybody, and even kings. Kings can't get away with it, but they did, and God was never okay with it. But that, and we see the consequences of that. So King David's maid, 
was a beautiful, dark-skinned Shulamite. All right, now let's read, a, let's read a bit of the, of the Song of Songs, the best song that's ever been written. We'll start with uh, chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beloved. This is the woman starting off. So this is, this is, this is King Solomon writing the woman's lines, just so you guys get this in, into your head. King Solomon is writing the woman's lines, and this is what she says. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Friends, this is her friends. We rejoice and we delight in you. We praise you. Your love, more, your love more than wine, the, the woman. How right they are to adore you. Dark, and I, dark am I, yet lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent and curtains of Solomon, do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun, and because I am dark and lovely is what she says. So what's the issue? She is the most, she's the most beautiful woman in the country. She's won the beauty pageant, and her skin is dark. We have different, um, uh, we have different conventions of beauty. Our ideas of beauty, they change, and they evolve over time. Our modern perception of what is beautiful now is, is, a, is a model that is that's skinny and that is tan, and that is, you know, those perfect features. But in the 16th century, it was not that way at all. The, the image of beauty in the 16th century was somebody that was uh, white and pasty. So if you're white, and, uh, okay, no jokes, right? All right, getting there. Um, it's just the perception of what beautiful is. And even though she is beautiful, the fact that she is dark does not, it's not advantageous for her to be dark skin. Because if you are in the royal house, if you are a courtier, uh, it, is, it is more preferable that you have lighter skin because that means that you're not a laborer that has been baked in the sun all day. Does that make sense? So you could distinguish between royalty or people of power, people of money, if they, if they had a tan or not. So basically, if you, were, if you looked like a surfer and if you were tan and, and, you know, and had great muscles, uh, they would automatically categorize you as a peasant and not nobility and not beautiful, ironically. So beautiful people, light-skinned and voluptuous. So she was a little bit different. She must have been stunning. She must have, I mean, despite her ethnicity, she captivated David, all the guys that were around looking for the most beautiful woman in, uh, in, the, in the country. She captivated them. And I believe that Solomon fell in love with David's maid. Isn't that interesting? Because in the Song of Songs, she is the Shulamite woman. And uh, when, they, when David's maid is a Shulamite woman, and both 
texts say that she is the most beautiful woman in the land. I think it's her. I think it's David's maid. uh, We don't know for sure, but that's what we're going to do. All right, so what's the big deal? Why, um, how does, okay, how do you, uh, how do you fall in love with dad's maid? You see why this is forbidden love? It's forbidden love on a couple of different categories. One is that she does not fall in line with scripture in that she is a person of ethnicity, meaning that she is not a Jewish girl. So the king should not be dating this type of a, of a girl because she's outside of the people of God, uh, wherever Shulamite is, whatever it is. And, and so not only is she ethnically not the right match for Solomon, but, um, but religiously she's not the right match for Solomon either. Yet he's in love with her. Uh, in Kings chapter 4, uh, we figure out uh, what the big deal is about David's maid. David dies, and Adonijah is David's fourth son. He is the next in line to become the king. He is, he, the kingdom technically does belong to him. Solomon is number eight, or maybe even number nine down the list to become the king. He does, he does not qualify to become the king, but he, he gets promoted into that place by Nathan the priest and by guess whom else? His mom, Bathsheba. Bathsheba was a very smart woman. And let me, let me I'll tell you why this is, because um, David comments on, or Solomon comments on this. This is chapter three, verse 11. Come out, you daughters of Zion, and look at the king. I look at King Solomon wearing the crown. That's when he gets he gets uh, commissioned. The crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. Interesting, huh? So who who uh, crowned King Solomon? Was it the priest? Was it David who crowned him? His mom did. So mom is the one that orchestrated Solomon to become king. She pulled all the strings. She knew how to work David. And the, the, the thought behind it is because David sinned with Bathsheba, because he seduced Bathsheba, because he killed, murdered Bathsheba's husband, like he, he realized when he was called out on the carpet, that he realized that he had sinned. And I believe he never got over that guilt. He paid the consequences for this sin, for this, for this adultery, for this murder, for this great grand lie. He paid for it for the rest of his life. We see it get manifested out in the rebellion of Absalom. We see it get manifested in the loss of one of his childs. So we, we see him pay the consequences, but I don't think he ever quite got over the guilt of what he did inside of his heart. See, David is a man after God's own heart, and when you commit an atrocity at this level, it jacks you up. 
And so this is a jacked up guy. And even though he's paid the consequences of the sin, deep down inside, he still feels the desire to make things better. He doesn't quite feel like he has been completely forgiven. Have you ever been in this category? Like where, like where the sin that you've committed, maybe in college, you, have, you haven't gotten over it yet. You know intellectually, maybe spiritually, that God has forgiven you of your sin, but you still beat yourself up day in and day out, and you can't release it to God. And I think that this is what was happening to David. And to amend for his sins, he says, okay, I'm going to go out of order and I, I, because I have betrayed Bathsheba so badly, the compensation is, yes, I will make Solomon the king. And I think that's what's going on. So Adonijah, he's, he's the rightful king. He knows it. Dad is sick. Dad's like in bed with his, you know, foxy handmaiden. And He's just like completely out of the, like he's not running a thing. And Adonijah seizes his chance, takes the crown, puts it on his head, has an incredible party with Joab, one of the commanders, and some other power brokers, another, some other priests, and he's got all the guys of money, and they're at this great banquet table. And then Nathan the priest, who is very close with David, Nathan is the one that calls David out on the carpet for his adultery and for the murder, David says, oh, for, you know, you're right, forgive me, I have sinned. There was a really tight relationship between King David and Nathan, so tight, in fact, that David even names one of his sons, Nathan, after the priest. Nathan goes in and says, look, Adonijah has crowned himself king. Did you know what was going on? So here's a little, here's a little clue. Uh, leaders don't like to be surprised. If you decide to act independently and your boss finds out the hard way, you're going to pay the consequences of your actions. It is, I don't know, there's a philosophy that it's better to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. Not necessarily so. Because heads could roll when leaders get surprised. And David's like, what? Uh, I, I did not crown Adonijah my son king. What, 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 what is he thinking that he could just, you know, bypass my authority and, and just do this himself? Of course not. Nathan comes in. Bathsheba comes in. They plead the case. They remind David of his promise to install Solomon as king. And he says, all right, this is what you got to do. You got to get, get my donkey. We're going to stick Solomon on, on the donkey. We're going to get the priests that are on our side. And the mercenaries, the mercenaries, and they all go in this great procession. They go down this road into the city. It's the very same path that Jesus takes, uh, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. It's the very same path, and it's all pomp and circumstances. And at the very same time, uh, Adonijah and Joab and all these other guys are having their celebration party and they hear all the ruckus and Adonijah says, oh, they're celebrating me, aren't they? And the priest comes in and says, I got some bad news for you. They're not celebrating you. This is Solomon coming in and, and David has crowned him king. And everybody at the dinner table bolts. 
It's like one of the funniest scenes in the Bible. They all just take off, and Adonijah knows that he's, he's doomed. He is, uh, he is now lost the kingdom. He had the kingdom for a day, and he's lost it. Solomon is securely, he's got, the, he's, got the, he's got the priest by his side, he's got the mercenaries by his side, he's got a really huge uh, leadership base in the military by his side, so he's got it locked up, Adonijah knows it, he goes in and he's, he, he's begging for forgiveness, he's like, you know, he, this is what they say, he goes into the temple and he grabs onto the horns, so your, your boss is about to lop your head off. You're about to get fired. This is what you do. You symbolically grab onto the horns and you plead and you beg to keep your job. You hold on to the horns of the altar. If you feel like God has abandoned you, that's also a very good position to take. You go into the temple of God. You go into his presence. You grab onto the horns of the altar and you plead for your life. And this is what Adonijah does. He, it gets granted to him. Solomon grants his life. And if you've read anything about uh, Henry VIII, you know that this does not work out. King, kings do not do this. Kings will kill the competition. That's what they do. That's why they're kings. Yet Solomon spares Adonijah's life. He says, if you just straighten up, if you don't do anything naughty, if you just stay in your lane, you can be in the, you can be in the court. I'm not going to take your life. Just don't, don't choose me off. That's all you got to do to stay in your lane and be cool, and you will be alive. And he does it. But Adonijah had eyes for the most beautiful woman in the land. And he approaches Bathsheba. Bathsheba's a smart woman. He approaches Bathsheba. He says, look, I ha- you know that I was the king for a day. Can I have a consolation prize? Can I have David's maid as my wife and we're just going to go away? We're just going to leave the land. We're going to go get a cabin somewhere. We're going to live out the rest of our lives. Can I just have one little consolation prize? Can I just have this little slave girl to be my wife? And of course, it's no big deal. She's of no royal blood. She's of no significance of all. She doesn't have any, she doesn't have a dowry. She doesn't have any money. She doesn't have any influence. She's just pretty. So of course, Bathsheba says, you know what? If I can get you out of my hair, why not? She's all yours. All this, I'm just going to tell Solomon. Solomon finds out. Solomon hits the roof. And he kills Adonijah ASAP. Why? Because this move would have uh, taken away Solomon's authority. Uh, Would have been a challenge to Solomon's reign? Absolutely not. It had absolutely nothing to do with that. Because the Shulamite girl never had intercourse with King David. She never had a claim to the throne. Adonijah was killed because Solomon was in love with this girl too. We have, it's the classic story of two brothers being in love with the same girl. It's classic, isn't it? I, when I was in college, my roommate and I had a thing for the same girl. Like we were best buds. We did everything together. 
You know, we, we, we enjoyed the same things. We played chess together. We, we messed off. We got into trouble. Like, he was my bro. Until this foreign exchange student from Chile came to town. And all bets were off. <laughs> the gloves came off. It was, there was no, there was no uh, brotherhood of mutual respect. It was every man for himself. I won, by the way. Uh, so... <laughs> I know, isn't it horrible? But this is the way that guys are. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. But that's what happens. Solomon loved her. We don't know if uh, it, it does read out that he did marry her, but it doesn't explicitly say this in any of the texts. It does call the Shulamite woman his bride, but there really is no marriage I believe that the reason why I believe that this was written down at a young age, there is no reference to the temple at this time. So this, this song was possibly even written down before the temple was made. And I believe that this song was written before Solomon was um, imparted with the gift of wisdom. So this was before his encounter with God, before God poured out the wisdom on him. Because we don't see him acting too wise. In this, well, he doesn't act wise most of his life, even though he's the wisest man in the world. Again, he's got this thing for women. I believe that it was written as a very young, energetic man. In contrast to Ecclesiastes, which is very dark and very pessimistic, and where the theme of the Song of Songs is intimacy. In Ecclesiastes, you know what the theme of Ecclesiastes is? It's meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, the rest of the story of this song. So we see the, you know, we see the, the, the courtship, we see the intimacy, we see uh, the foreplay, we see the intercourse before marriage, by the way. I, I, here's the interesting thing. I, I, I don't know why I'm going. I, I just feel like I need to just tell you what the Bible says. But guess who doesn't? Matthew Henry doesn't cover this. <laughs> uh, Through the Bible Radio doesn't cover this. Uh, Grace Unto You doesn't cover this. All the expository preachers, the line-by-line -line guys, they will not tell you this. They will not tell you that this is a forbidden love. That it is a extramarital affair at best, it is a premarital affair. They don't want to talk about it. I'll talk about it with you because that's, that's what's really going on. Now, at the end of the book, chapter 7 and chapter 8, let me, let me just hit on this and then we'll actually get into the meaning of it. Uh, I'm getting there. Dang it. Okay. So we have this back and forth. We have lovers searching for each other. We have them, um, we have them embracing each other outside under a tree. It says, you know, under the cedars and under the uh, under the, the firs. And so they are they are engaged in intimacy out in the open. So there's a full exposure of what's going on. Uh, they don't have their clothes on, by the way. This is why you don't, don't let your teenage daughters read this. <laughs> My daughter's not going to read this for a long time because she's smart and she can read between the lines. 
Here's the end of it. This is chapter 6, verse 11. This is the lover speaking. So this is Solomon speaking. This is, uh, and this part was probably redacted a little bit later. This part was probably added maybe around the same time that he wrote Ecclesiastes. So he's got this really cool song that he wrote maybe when he was a teenager, and now he's an old grumpy guy, and he's pulling out his old notes, he's pulling out his old old songs, he's looking back at his meaningless life, and he's remembering the time when he was in love, because now, right now, he's so disillusioned with life. He's an old man, he's a grumpy old king, he's disillusioned with life, everything has let him down in his his eyes, even though he was the wisest man in the world. So now he's looking back, and verse 11, he says, I went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley to see if the vines have budded or if the pomegranates were in bloom. Here we go. Before I realized it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. What's that mean? That means that life has gotten in the way of his first love. Has this ever happened to you? Okay, just, okay, we can use this text as, as, a, as a reference for marriage. You remember what it was like when you first got married? You remember what it was like in your honeymoon? And 10 years later, it's just not the same. And you're listening to Pastor Larry give the announcements, and you're like, oh my gosh, I probably should go to counseling because my marriage is a train wreck. It's because the, the weight of the world has taken, away, has taken you away from your first love. Maybe your spouse Maybe the weight of the world has taken you away from your love of God, your intimacy with God. Oh, come back. Come back, O Shulamites. Oh, come back that we may gaze on you. Old grumpy king, remembering the days when he was young and when he was in love and life had color in it. He's, he's like, you know what? I messed everything up. Somewhere along the line, I messed the stuff up. Um, Solomon, okay, this, she could have been his first wife. Chances are Pharaoh was his first wife. Pharaoh's daughter was his first wife. It's probably what, who his first wife really was. But eventually, Solomon, he loves this girl. He doesn't ever talk about loving Pharaoh's daughter. Never talks about loving her. He loves this girl. And then eventually, in, 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 when this is being written, he's got, there's our, there's, he gets 66 wives. But by the end of his life, he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. Do you think that he loves them all? What do you think their purpose is? Was it lust? Maybe a little bit, but probably not. No, it's the cares of this world. He married them for money. He married them for political gain. He married them for position in this world, and that rotted away his very soul. So polygamy is not a good idea, folks. Why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Manahim. Um, there's one thing, you know, whenever you read through the Bible, I mean, how many times you do it, you're always going to discover something new. This was my new discovery in this season, was this verse right here. I don't know how many times I've read over this, the dance of Manahim. I mean, it's just, 
You know, it's just some more poetic mumbo jumbo, you know, filler space. It's not. This has meaning. Does anybody know what this means, by the way? Because I just discovered it for myself. You know what the dance of Manaim is? All right, I'll tell you. It's great. Manaim is a, is a little city. Uh, it's, it's, there are points through the Old Testament where it is where we see uh, drama taking place. And the first time is with Jacob when he encounters the angels. And the, the, the definition of Manaim is the place of the two camps. And so what Jacob is coming into the realization, this is, this is the father of Israel. Uh, this is Israel. He is coming to the, the realization that there is a tension because remember, he's having this vision of, of the stairway of heaven, right? Of, of, of this, this, the, the separation between heaven and earth. So he said that there is, a, there is a separation between heaven and earth. And in this life, there are two camps. There is the secular camp, or there's the natural camp, and then there's the spiritual camp. So that's the first interaction that we have. And then this is actually the very same place where he goes into conflict with his brother Esau. So there's two camps in conflict. Later, we see other, other instances of where there's conflict. Uh, not in not the too distant uh, future, Joab, who we talked about, he was uh, King David's commander. Uh, him and Abner. Abner was one of the, the, the generals. Abner was the general of the tribe of Benjamin. Joab is the, the general of the tribe of, of uh, Judah. And they get the guys together. And this is typical guy stuff. They decide that they're going to have a pit bull fight. I don't know what it is. It's like they don't have enough bad guys to kill. So they're going to have a gladiator showdown warfare in, in Manaheim and, and you know, by this pool. And they're going to get their very best warriors to fight each other and kill each other. And of course, it gets out of hand. And the two tribes, the two camps are divided. So the, the, the dance of Manaheim is conflict and tension and trying to, 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 to flesh out the two different worlds that we live in. And David is saying, oh my gosh, not David, Solomon is saying, he's, write, he's writing this love story, he's thinking to himself, oh my gosh, I've abandoned my first love. I have, uh, I, instead of focusing on the purity of love, I am now focusing on my chariots, see, of managing my chariots, so that the material possessions are more important to me than love, and it has stripped my soul out of my heart. And I am too, I'm too consumed about all the drama, about all the tension. And I have let the drama and, and the two camps of this world pull my heart away from God's love. Oh, he's, he's looking back at what's going on. So that's the text. And in a few minutes, I've got to explain the rest of this. What is the book about? The book is about intimacy. It, the reason why erotic love poetry gets placed in, in the Hebrew canon because before the Christians got a hold of it, this, was, this made the Hebrew canon. And I'm sure there were a lot of other erotic love poems that, that didn't make it because they didn't fit. But the Holy Spirit wanted the song of songs, the best song in the world to go in here. Why? It's because it's an allegory. The allegory is this. It is, it is, it is the intimacy that a man has with a woman. Is, it should be the same intimate intensity that God has with his people. And for us, 
As Christians, the allegory gets translated into this. It, the, the, the same love that, that Solomon has for the Shunammite woman, it is the same love that the bridegroom, Jesus, has for his church. So I'm going to give you a little bit of homework to, to do this week. Read, read this actually in the message version. It's actually a little bit easier. Uh, Peterson is a little loose on his translations. I'll just tell you that. So both read it in, like, I don't know, NIV or NASB, and then, and then message. Um, it, it, Peterson gets to the heart of what's going on, but again, he's a little loose on his translation. So the message is a paraphrase, but you'll get the heart of the love poem. You really will if you read the message. Intimacy is the key. It's, now, from the few minutes that I have, if you are a guy, I'm going to jack you up so hard right now. And again, this is not, I'm not doing this because I'm going to take pleasure in making you feel uncomfortable. I am not doing this because I want to see you squirm in your seat and I want to see this for, for pure shock value. But this allegory, this song of songs, the ultimate song between a lover and, and his beloved, it is between... Jesus and his bride, the church. And for us guys, that means that we are the bride of Christ. And for guys, that's extremely difficult to do. And I'm not saying this flippantly or to get a laugh or to get a chuckle, but the, 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 the mental image that at least I have struggled with is being a guy and trying to put myself into the shoes of, of being the bride of Christ is, oh my gosh, is, so God wants me to dress up and drag and then I'm like, no, that's, that can't be. So I just look at some other guy, and I picture him in drag. And, but see, that, I, I know this is difficult to get, but that is the truth of it. Because God, because we are fashioned to be intimate with God on that level, on that intimate level. And so for guys, it's very hard, because that means that when we read, okay, when you read Song of Songs, replace the man with the Lord or with God or with Jesus and replace the, the woman with the church. Read it that way. Or even replace the woman with yourself. And so what that does for a guy is like, oh my gosh, so that means that I have to kiss God on the lips as, as the Shulamite kisses God on the lips? Spiritually and symbolically, yes. Does that mean that I have to uh, you know, wear a bridal gown. Again, this is difficult. Spiritually and symbolically, yes. Jesus talks about the ten virgins. We are men. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. That's the good part because we are a guy in that allegory. But we are also the bride of Christ. That means that we are the gal in that, in that category. And the ten virgins that, that Jesus talks about is that ten were prepared and ten were not. And the, excuse me, the five were prepared and five were not. You don't want to be one of the five that are not prepared when the bridegroom comes back. And so, yeah, like, like in, I mean, if you can get over the imagery, if you can, like, this could be the last time you ever think about yourself in this way and thinking about yourself as a bride, that's okay because the main point is intimacy with the Lord. But it gets even worse. I told you I was going to jack you up. And I'm not doing this to make you feel uncomfortable. But again, you have to embrace God. You have to 
you have to kiss him with your mouth spiritually. That's the best way that I can say it. But it even gets even worse than that because the dress has to come off. This Song of Songs is about sex. It's about the most intimate connection between two individuals. So for us guys, that means that all the barriers have to come off and that you have to shed all of the, the things that get between you and God. You have to become intimate with God. You have to respond to God authentically and wholeheartedly and with your soul laid bare. This is what God wants us to do as men. I'm sorry this is geared towards men, but I just feel like this message had to be. What God wants us to do as men is uh, not be dressed in a false self, but the most important call in our lives is that we are standing in our authentic truth of who God calls us. And so when, we're, when I'm talking about I mean, what does it mean for a man to be intimate with the Lord at the intensity of, of Song of Songs, Song of Songs is, you know, we always say, you know, you know the book of Matthew is the most amazing book in, in the whole scripture. We all say that, that kind of stuff offhanded. But the Song of Songs, I think, is not the best book, but is by far the most intense book, and it is probably the most disturbing book because we're talking about this allegory between the relationship with the Heavenly Father and his creation, and it's meant to be intimate. The intimacy that we get to experience with God is actually forbidden. That's why it's so difficult to do, because it's not natural. That's why you don't want to come to church. That's why you're afraid to have your feelings laid bare, because it's not natural. It's a forbidden love. And the God of the universe violates the laws of the universe. He violated the laws of the universe on the cross so that we could have intimate relationship with us. Our, our, the church's mission statement, Granite Creek's mission statement is what? It's relationship, not religion, right? It is, it's, a, it's an authentic connection with God and not a systematic response to a structure we pref guys prefer rules over relationship, and Song of Songs takes it even more deep and more intense because what it is saying is intimacy, not religion. That's what God desires of us. All right, I got to get the band and the ushers to come up to the front. And right now we're going to take communion, and the point of it is intimacy. And uh, as they're on their way up, I got to get this into your heads because I know it's difficult for guys to process this imagery of intimacy. And even though in Song of Songs it's framed in a sexual manner, I have, I have been intimate with the Lord the day that I got saved in my parents' kitchen I've had encounter. I've had some pretty intense encounters with God, probably from the age of ten on. You know, sporadically here and there. I've been slain in the spirit. I've been knocked down, dragged out, uh, spoken in tongues. Uh, I have been outside my body. 
Um, it's, it's happened in church. It's happened in this church. It's happened in other churches. It's happened at a stoplight. You name it. I, I, you know, I've experienced everything. Whenever I say stupid stuff like that, God reminds me that I have not experienced everything. But I'll tell you this, guys. I'll tell you this. Out of all of my intimate encounters with God, all of my intense spiritual connections, the reason why I got there is because I was willing to shed off some of this, I was willing to take the, if you will, the symbolic dress off and to go into God's presence. That's why I was able to have an encounter like that. But here you go. Never once, this is why it's inappropriate for kids to be in this service, never once out of all my experiences with God have I ever been sexually aroused. Does that make sense? God's not like that. God does not work that way. In fact, my encounters with God they're better than sex has ever been. That's what he desires for us. It is not, it is not for men, it's not God's will to make you weird. You know that? It's not his will to make you weird. It is God's will that you stand in your authentic Truth that you become the man and you become the woman that God has called you to be. And we lack power in our life. We lack mission and drive because we lack intimacy with the Lord. The woman, the beloved, the Shulamite girl, she runs out, she's, she's missing her, her lover. She wants to connect with God. She wants to connect with Solomon. She runs out into the streets and, and she gets persecuted. She gets beaten by guards. She, get ab- she gets abused by, God, by, by people. And we're gonna see, and maybe you've already seen, seen it, the Church of Jesus Christ is going to go through persecution. But for us, for, for, for the body of Christ and for the bride of Christ, the same thing, the reason why we are willing to go out into the streets and, and face persecution, to face torment, it's not for justice. It's not to be right. It's not to push a political agenda. It's not to feed poor kids. We get persecuted because we want to be intimate with the Lord. That's where persecution comes from. And intimacy with the Lord is what will drive you into the streets to encounter God, to look for him, to search for him as the woman searches for her lover. All right, um, we'll finish up on, uh, on Wednesday night. I'll show, you how the, I'll show you how the allegory will even flip, where, you will, where guys, you will actually be King Solomon and you will, you will be engaged with Lady Wisdom herself. That's the better story, right? That one's easier to get into our heads. We'll talk about that on Wednesday night. But right now, if I could have the ushers come to the front, and we're going to pass out the elements. We're going to take communion. And it is the most intimate time that you can have with the Lord. This is the time right now, right after the words I say, you need to be reflecting on, on yourself. You need to be getting yourself right with the Lord. 
And then you're going to take in the wine, and you're going to take in the meat, and this is what we do to connect with Jesus. So if I could get some other people to help pass out the elements, and uh, there's gonna, we're going to do a song as these are going on. And um, as you know, in the cup is the wine, and the Song of Songs explains the wine is going over the lips, and it is staining Jesus fleshes it out even more that the wine is, is for the forgiveness of our sins. And by the stripes on his back and the blood that was dripped through the, the cross, it heals our body. And the flesh itself is for our provision. It provides, go ahead and just pass those out. It provides what we need. It is the day to day. And so in this next song, I want to encourage you, you just take this, take the elements when God calls you to, when you feel like your heart is right. If you don't feel like your heart is right, you don't have to do it. Uh, you know, just put it under your seat or something. I want to encourage you to get intimate with God. And if you're true to yourself, you won't feel weird about it you'll feel liberated about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your good word. We thank you so much that, uh, that you desire us, that you're passionate about your bride, you're passionate about your beloved, and that you are looking for us. Of course, you know exactly where we're at, but you're looking for us and you're gazing for us. And the Shulamite girl, this little peasant girl, she fell in love with Solomon. And it is our desire that the church of Jesus Christ falls in love with Jesus with the same desire and the same passion where she is searching high and low to be in the presence of God, to be intimate with you. So God, right now, we just pray that we're intimate with you, that we learn this secret that it is intimacy and not religion, God. It is intimacy that you require from all of your children. We love you, Lord.